Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, where we step outside the Westminster bubble and take a look at the issues that really matter for the north of England from a northern perspective. I'm Rob Parsons, a journalist based in Leeds who covers politics across the north from Blackpool to Barnsley and Bamburgh and tries to make sense of it all in a daily email newsletter called the Northern Agenda. This week I wanted to do something a little different and have a proper deep dive into a place that maybe doesn't get as much attention as Manchester or Leeds or even Newcastle. Here's a clip from our podcast a few weeks ago when I spoke to Andy Haldane, the former chief executive at the Bank of England and a man who has helped shape the government's levelling up vision. Well, let me give you an example from close to where I grew up. You mentioned I was born in Sunderland, um, which is a place that has not done well for the for the the whole of my life, actually, it's been stuck or perhaps even retreating. I mean, there, um, the signs there of a real stirring. Now, I'd love to know what comes into your head when you think of Sunderland. Is it the football team battling to get back into the Premier League? Or maybe it's car production with a huge Nissan base in Sunderland, which the Japanese car giant has now promised to use to build electric vehicles, securing thousands of jobs in the process. If you're a bit more politically minded, maybe you're thinking about general election night when local officials in the northeast pull out all the stops to ensure Sunderland is the first to declare its results a few minutes after midnight. Or was it back in 2016 when Sunderland became the canary in the coal mine for the shock Brexit referendum results, surprising pundits by voting to leave the European Union in a moment that set the tone for towns and cities across the north? But what I suspect won't come to mind is Sunderland being the smartest city in the UK, powered by the fastest 5G connections and with passengers travelling in driverless vehicles around the city. Or a place where you can see not only the prestigious BBC Reef lecture being recorded, but also gigs by Bruce Springsteen and even the acclaimed musical Hamilton. I imagine you'd be even less likely to imagine a Hollywood-style film studio, the only one in the north of England, where thousands of people are hard at work producing the next blockbuster film or Netflix series. But in fact, all these things are going on in Sunderland, a city that, away from the limelight, is in the process of quietly transforming itself in a way that I think could offer a valuable lesson to places elsewhere in the north of England looking to reverse their post-industrial decline and forge a new future for themselves. In this episode of the Northern Agenda podcast, I've spent time in Sunderland speaking to the people behind its ongoing renaissance, as well as locals in the city itself. Before I set off, I wanted to get a sense of Sunderland's place in the national landscape from an expert with a unique perspective. Paul Swinney grew up here in the 80s and 90s before leaving to become an economist. He's now Director of Policy and Research at the highly respected Centre for Cities think tank, which is dedicated to improving the economies of the UK's largest cities and towns. And while I was doing a quick Google about Paul, I discovered he is in fact the author of a fascinating sounding book called The Mackham Dictionary. So I started off by asking, what is that all about? Ah, it's the it's the Bible. It's the, the the reference for the wonderful words of Wearside. It was a um, it was a project I did a, a few years ago, um, based off the back I think of having left Sunderland and then realising that people would laugh at when you'd say things like cookbook, which for you know people from further south you might have to interpret that as being cookbook. Uh, I believe people uh, tend to pronounce it as. And um, thought there's actually something quite interesting here, and we can well, I can do something which. Um, 
sort of has a bit of a play around with a bit of identity, um, celebrates that identity, but also doesn't take it too seriously at the same time as well and has a, has a bit of a, a laugh with it. And it started as something which uh, I did on social media and it got really good pickup. And I thought, actually, do you know what? We could do a dictionary out of this. So the dictionary was born. Um, very successful. It was uh, Waterstone Sunderland, most successful uh, book ever. Take that, God. Take that, uh, J.K. Rowling as well, for how many copies we managed to, to shift. And all of the my royalties went towards um, uh, skills programs, education programs in Sunderland and the wider Northeast. So it was very much a you know, cultural identity uh, sort of piece, something to celebrate that cultural identity, but then was bringing in, I think, what I learned from Centre for Cities about the core importance of skills and I wanted to to use that if we're going to do something about the region, then to celebrate the region is then to use the funds to try and, and tackle what I believe is the, the fundamental challenge that Sunderland faces, which is uh, low skills, uh, low educational attainment. And if we don't crack that, then certainly we'll not see, uh, you know, we will not make progress on all the other things that we need to make progress on. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll come back to those challenges uh, in, in, in a bit. I mean, Sunderland has obviously changed a lot over over the the years and the decades and as as someone who you know grew up there knows you know Sunderland is clearly very close to your heart but now you you you're you're outside that that region did you have any particular memories of growing up in Sunderland that sort of sum up kind of the place that it is so I grew up in Sunderland in the in the late 80s and and 90s and I I can't remember the last coal mine closing which uh, is now the Stadium Light, uh, where Sunderland Place sits on that. I can't remember the the last shipyard closing as well, which I believe closed just after, sort of within my lifetime. And so Sunderland has then gone through this radical change, of which you know people talk a lot about. I've got family who went down the pit. I've got family who uh, who work in the shipyards, but I don't actually remember any of that. I, I just see, I think, a, a gradual change that has happened, and certainly, I think there were some sort of interesting things that happened towards the, the late 90s when the Stadium of Light was built, um, when the uh, the National Glass Centre was created, when so there was a boom in, in call centre jobs on the on the edge of town. You know, that they were the types of things that I saw growing up. But I think I also saw you know, or was puzzled by I think the, the general struggles that people faced, you know, I didn't grow up and was, I wasn't keenly aware, certainly when I was younger, that it was a, a city that was struggling relative to, to places further south. But you always sort of got a feel of it. And there was the question then, well, why is that the case? You know, why is this place not doing as well as, as places further south? You know, what policy, what have policies been put in place to encourage that or not encourage that? And I think, you know, then started to, as a young teenager, you know, devouring stories from the Sunderland Echo about you know this plan and that plan and the other plan, which invariably never ever came off, which was incredibly frustrating. Um, but then I think that is exactly why I then do the job that I do now. It was it was growing up around that and not, and seeing sort of something's not quite right here. Why aren't there so many jobs? You know, why aren't there so many high paid jobs? Why is there a lot of deprivation in in certain parts of the city at the very least? Um, and I wanted no answers to that. And I think I've now you know, wound up doing that professionally and hopefully being able to, to contribute to at least some of those answers. Yeah. And I mean, like you say, your, you know, your job now at the Centre for Cities is that you look at cities all across the UK and try and, I guess, come up with policies that will help them succeed, whether it's big cities like London or, uh, you know, northern cities, Manchester, Liverpool, or uh, I guess, you know, cities like Sunderland, which perhaps don't get as much attention i mean how does sunderland fit in with the sort of work that you're doing at center for cities where, where does it fit in with the sort of the future that you see for cities in, in this country 
Well, there's if you look at the you know, the performance of, of cities across the country, the first thing to say is that urban areas should be playing a, a principal role in the national economy. Um, our work shows that they do, but there are certainly a number of them that are not are not playing the role that they should be. And I think that the biggest challenge for, for national policy is the performance of, of the biggest places in the country outside of London. So places like Manchester, uh, Birmingham, Glasgow are not put, uh, sort of performing anywhere near where they should be. Sort of lagging well behind the role that uh, their European counterparts play in their, their own respective economies. I think that's where there needs to be, you know, a really big focus to try and turn that round. And in the northeast, you know, dare I say it, you know, died in the wool Mackham, who wrote the, the Mackham Dictionary. That also means you're dealing with the challenges that Newcastle faces because Newcastle does generate prosperity for the wider uh, wider northeast, but doesn't generate as much as it should. I think where, where Sunderland fits into that is understanding that, you know, Sunderland too is, is not playing the role that it should be. It should be generating a lot more prosperity, certainly for uh, for people of Sunderland, you know, bits of Tyneside and definitely into East Durham in particular. Um, and so that's where policy should be trying to, it should be focused on how to try and make this place more prosperous to, uh, or generate more prosperity for the people who live in and around it. Now, I don't think... Um, Unless we see sort of a rapid growth in Sunderland, we're not going to see Sunderland as be plays a prominent role as, as a Manchester, for example, or what Manchester should be playing. But it's certainly, you know, the case that Sunderland should be playing a, a larger role than is than is that has historically been the case, certainly in the last twenty to thirty years. And that's what policy should be focusing on, making Sunderland the best version of itself. And you mentioned, you know, the relatively low skills uh, level within within Sunderland and you know educational attainment and issues like that. Is that the sort of the silver bullet in terms of getting Sunderland to succeed, or are there other other things it needs to be doing? It's 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 regrettably as as you know as, as Rob, there's there's never a silver bullet in the the world of local economic development, which as frustrating as that can be. And it's, but it's definitely the case that I think it is a struggle to be able to bring about change in other areas if you don't deal with the challenges faced around skills. So if um, if you think about a high-skilled company that's going to stick its pin somewhere in the map, it is going to do that in the places where it knows it can get the workers it requires. And if that's high-skilled workers, then Sunderland, or indeed most towns and cities across the north, lose out on that front because they just haven't got as many of those uh, of those workers as the case further south. And I think the you know, we came came up with a, a term uh, coined the Nissan test for 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 leveling up policy, or indeed any policy that is about trying to bring in uh, higher paid jobs. And Nissan's a very interesting one because when you think about the that car maker, you think about Sunderland. You know, a factory there, seven thousand people, the cars roll off the production lines. And if ever there's a press story to do with automotive or with Nissan in particular, that's where the cameras go. What's interesting about Nissan is that despite having, you know, its, its notional UK headquarters in Sunderland, the high value stuff isn't done in Sunderland. The engineering is done in Bedfordshire or Buckinghamshire. I always get that wrong. I think it's Buckinghamshire. Apologies. And the design is done in Paddington. You know, both of those high value elements of the product of the production are done in the Greater Southeast. And Nissan has split those things out. So the low value production stuff, which is more routinized in its nature, gets done in Sunderland, where there's access to lots of workers, but lower skilled workers, and access to lots of cheap land. Whereas the high value stuff goes where, where Nissan had the best bet of getting the, the high skilled workers that it required. Now, if leveling up or whatever was going to change that, the Nissan test would be 
are the interventions that that are being made would they change Nissan's decision if it was to reinvest was invest in the UK all over again and would it put the high value stuff in a place like Sunderland as well as the low value stuff and it's only if a policy can pass that test do we think it actually will bring about change in a Sunderland or a Glasgow or wherever it is that we might be talking about and finally so just talking about I guess when we talk about the leveling up agenda and we hear I think one of the things that Michael Gove has said is that you know people who are born or grow up in a you know a red wall or a northern town or city leveling up will have succeeded if they don't don't feel that they have to leave uh, that area in order to fulfill their potential i mean how optimistic are you that that will be the case in sunderland at any point in our in, in our lifetimes or even you know or or, or soon will, will, will that ever happen do you think I'm definitely more optimistic now than what I probably was about five years ago. So, you know, right at the start, I nodded to the all those sudden the echo headlines I, I read through my uh, formative years about this was going to happen on. Uh, on the Vaux site, it's a big site in the centre of Sunderland, where Vaux Brewers used to be based. It was going to be this plan, it was going to be that plan, it was going to be the next plan, and all these fantastic uh, CGI uh, mock-ups that happened, and and you know, you just knew this weren't going to happen. Um, but quite a very interesting thing I think has happened in recent years where there's been a change of political and um, executive leadership and the council is, is now doing a lo- lots and lots of things that are pretty interventionist, uh, especially by other local authority standards, but are doing certainly the things that we would, at Centre for Cities, would su- suggest have the highest probability of succeed- succeeding. So um, es- uh, especially a lot of work around the city centre, you know, that, that Vork site, which was a political hot potato for for many decades actually end up uh, turning out. Uh, now there are buildings going up on it. There are people in there, um, which is great. And there are a number of other things that are going on in the city centre, trying to remodel the city centre to make it a more attractive place to do business. So um, will it work? I don't know. But uh, but certainly has it got the highest probability of succeeding? Well, succeeding. Well, that's definitely what we would suggest would be um, would be the way forward. And I think, you know, if all that came off, then... There might not be any more jobs for economists, for example. So it might be that, you know, if I was to have my time over again, maybe I would still be uh, going off elsewhere uh, uh, in the short term, at least. But certainly, you, you, I would hope that there will be a wider range of jobs uh, in Sunderland itself, or a wider range of high-paid jobs in Sunderland itself, um, complemented, hopefully, by a wider range of, of high-paid jobs in Newcastle as well, so that if somebody chooses to stay, they have the option to stay, as opposed to certainly a lot of my friends who have uh, who've made the trip south because uh, to fulfil their career ambitions, they've had to look elsewhere. Paul, thank you very much. So I've arrived in Sunderland. I'm in the city centre now. I've come up from Leeds. The train was cancelled, which is pretty much par for the course uh, in the north. So I was able to get the uh, metro from Newcastle into Sunderland, which is always a bit of a treat uh, using a a nice metro service when you come from Leeds, where we don't have one. Uh, But actually, I'm in Sunderland today for what is quite a big day for the city. The uh, annual BBC Reef Lecture is being delivered at the fire station, which is a state of the art uh, venue uh, in the city and uh, Ben Ansell, a top political scientist, is going to give a lecture about the future of solidarity to a packed 
audience and it's going to be quite a big day. Sunderland has never held the Reef Lecture before and Ben Ansell is following in the footsteps of the likes of Stephen Hawking and Hilary Mantel in uh, delivering this lecture which will go out on uh, national BBC radio uh, in a few days time. My first stop is the fire station itself, a building that's been around since 1908 but hadn't been used for years and was on the verge of being knocked down when the Sunderland Music, Arts and Culture Trust bought it for £90,000 in 2015. With the help of money from the Heritage Lottery Fund and Arts Council, it's now a stunning music, performance and theatre venue which also hosts a music school and musical theatres study class as well as performances by a diverse range of performers like the poet John Cooper Clark, indie favourite Calexico from Arizona and veteran punk rockers The Damned. I'm meeting Paul Callahan, the chair of the Sunderland Music Arts and Culture Trust, who's held a host of senior local roles in recent years, including as chairman of One North East. That's the name for the regional development agency created under Labour to transform the local economy, which was done away with in 2012 and replaced with local enterprise partnerships. Paul tells me about the exciting projects going on in Sunderland, not least a £1 million programme called Culture Start, where arts and culture will be used to help transform the lives of thousands of children and young people. It is a horrifying fact that in parts of the North East, four out of ten children live in poverty, something the first devolved metro mayor of the region will be hoping to do something about when they are elected next May. And while in Sunderland, I'm told some children from poor backgrounds have never even been to the city's beach a mile or so from the city centre. But this money from the Arts Council, officially announced a few days after my visit, will pay for young people who may never have been to the theatre before or played a musical instrument to take part in activities at the city's main cultural venues like the fire station. As Paul Callahan tells me, culture plays a vital role for anywhere that's looking to transform the way it sees itself and the way other people see it. Yes, I've always looked at um, urban regeneration in three sectors. The first is you've got to build a strong economy. Now that means actually having industry which is sustainable, which produces good jobs, well-paid jobs and career jobs so that people know that they don't have to move in order to earn a living. The second element is education, because if you don't actually have a well-educated populace, well-educated and well-trained workforce, then it's very difficult to build a, uh, a sustainable economy. So that, ha- that starts actually at the youngest level. You've got to actually um, have good primary schools, good nurseries, but also secondary schools where kids are um, encouraged and given the opportunity to go on to higher education. They, they should start at the age of 13 thinking that I can do this and why because I will be able to get a good job here in 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 the city but the third thing is actually about culture and I I think you can have a a good economy and and uh, good education but if there isn't a soul to the place isn't there somewhere where people can go and enjoy themselves and whether that's music or whether that's drama or whether that's art then it 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 lacks that um, ability to hold people 
and that's what we're trying to do here so it, it, in the fire station here we are we are giving music we're training people to be musicians we are training people to be dancers and, and actors but also we are giving it a focus for things that people want to do uh, in an evening during the day and we believe that actually that is that third ingredient that some places don't really get I think we're doing it here in Sunderland and um, um, you, you can see the change in people's attitudes how they regard the place and it's uh, it's very encouraging you're talking about how people in Sunderland uh, feel about the city and that's a really important aspect of uh, you know transforming a place like Sunderland isn't it just take me through your view on how uh, a, a city changes how it feels about itself and how that is going in Sunderland so far I think if you go back 10, 15 years, many, many places were regarded as left-behind places, left-behind cities. They were often the places where they had a particular industry which had gone into decline. And that's not just Sunderland, but there's many places in the north, uh, you know, the Prestons or the Scunthorpes or the Middlesbroughs, where they had been built for a specific reason, and that reason had now gone. And people who were proud of their place proud of where they come from almost saw the best years being in the past that the, the, the future didn't seem to have that excitement or that prospect of, of growth now you wouldn't see that if you lived in Leeds or if you lived in Manchester where people clearly could see the city growing and actually felt part of, of, of that growth so what you have to try and do and this is what we've been trying to do in Sunderland is to change people's perception of what the future holds. Now, it, it, you, you do that by going back to those three three pillars. First thing, they've got to see new jobs coming, and you've got to get things in Sunderland. It's actually the car industry and the software industry where we're actually seeing developments, and we're shouting about them. We're going to be the smartest city in the in the UK. That's all part of actually getting people to believe that what they're going to do is that the place is going to be a better place. In education. We are expanding into those areas which are most in demand. It happens to be healthcare. We're going to have a, we have a medical school which is already expanding, nursing school, pharmacy school, and these are all um, conscious decisions to expand those because of the way that society is going. Aging population, people living longer, and all those sort of things. But in terms of um, art and culture what we did in 2015 we made a bid to be UK city of culture and people laughed at us people said well it's ridiculous you haven't got the culture there no no this was a conscious decision to move us on that journey and what happened was that at first people that they they hoped things would happen but they didn't really think they would you know we've had plenty of years where promises have been made not fulfilled but once you actually get on that journey you can move people from hope to belief and belief is I think things are going to happen I can see it I can see things being built I can see events happening I can be part of that and that's really important this is not um, an elite this is actually as many people as you can to buy into that vision of, of, of changing culture and what happens then is people then start to get ambition so it's three stages hope belief and ambition and that ambition comes to individuals who then think 
actually I can become a singer or a musician or I can start a writing group or I can become a novelist all of those things start to happen but also the ambition is with the public sector so the university has ambition it really wants to make a difference the council now sees itself as actually being a major driving force with the the heft the financial uh, heft to be able to make those changes and the transformation is remarkable in four or five years it is absolutely remarkable what's happened and and we are, you know, we're, we're still in the, the early stages of this. There's, there's going to be many, many more uh, iterations of this over the, over the next few years. But it is a really exciting journey to be part of. And, you know, people, everybody you talk to in Sunderland is really sort of, oh, I can see the changes now. I can see what's happening. And that's really a change in attitude. It's really good. And in 10, 15 years' time, what, what do you think Sunderland will be like? Do you think it will have changed further beyond what it's like now? It's, it's interesting. When, when I started on this, this journey, I'm an, I'm an economist and I've, I've been looking at these sort of things for many years. There, there is another famous economist called Sir Paul Callaghan. Same, same name, but he's New Zealander. And he was, unfortunately, he he died quite young, but he had a a strategy about New Zealand. When he started that strategy, he said New Zealand was a peripheral country. He said people don't want to come to New Zealand because it's all to do with farming and butter and lamb. And he said, no, no. He said, we've got to make New Zealand an exciting place with high-quality jobs and a place where people want to come to. And that's what's happened. People go to New Zealand there because it's supposed to be fantastic. I've never been. I've been to Australia. But I've been. And they've done that. And I, I borrowed a phrase that he used. It is, make Sunderland a place where talent wants to live. And if you can make talented people say they want to live in that place, then talent breeds talent. And that's talent in terms of business, entrepreneurship, uh, academic talent, uh, music, cultural talent. Once you can create that momentum, get that snowball rolling down that hill, then actually it, it almost works by itself. You don't have to do too many interventions. And um, I think that's, that's the journey that we're on. Next, I go to visit Sharon Appleby from the Sunderland Business Improvement District, a body paid for by local firms with the objective of creating a vibrant city centre. How does she think Sunderland has changed in recent years? They've been the changes have been really significant, um, probably more so in the last say seven years or so, um, where the city council particularly have taken real interest in the in the city centre and have. Um, started to think about how you invest somewhere um, to create a really vibrant and and transforming place. Um, What previously happened was um, was a donut economy was created, a really successful one, but a donut economy was created in terms of places like Nissan being on the outskirts, the big um, business parks being put on the outskirts of the city. That then, um, that doesn't help in terms of creating a a really vibrant city. And that has been recognised now and those types of investment decisions have been turned around and now um, people are starting to, to really see the benefit 
of a, a, a transforming place to be. Um, in terms of kind of change of leadership and direction, that's also happened um, in the last sort of seven or eight years, um, not just within the local authority, there has been significant change there, but also within um, within some of the other really key stakeholders within the city. Um, so places like the university, the college, um, the bid, um, the, the hospital trust, you know, places like that, um, their, their chief executives, their leaders are massively behind the same plans as everyone else so everyone is pulling in the in the same direction and I think that's one of the key things for me and that has been really brilliant to see actually that everybody wants the same thing and everybody's working together to 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 realize the same thing um which previously to be fair that that wasn't always the case Absolutely. And part of your role is to sort of uh, promote the city centre in, in Sunderland. And I know talking about the levelling up agenda and the government efforts to bring up certain parts of the country, the role of town centres and city centres is always you know, really important because that really has a big impact on how people feel about the place that they live. So what's going on in Sunderland city centre at the moment? Has that changed quite a bit as well? Yeah, the, I mean, at the moment, on the ground in the city centre, there's around half a billion pounds worth of investment going into new office blocks, fantastic new homes, um, a, a, a new bridge to link both of the sides of the river because we have the football stadium, which is really key up here, um, to, the, to the city centre as well. So there's, you know, there's a significant amount of physical investment and physical regeneration taking place. Um, and what that is then resulting in is a lot of interest from new business who maybe would never have considered here. Um, a lot of independent, actually young, up-and-coming businesses um, who would probably never have considered a city centre being for them when, when they wanted to start. But actually, again, the local authority, the bid are really encouraging of that and actually um, wanting people to come and, 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 um, and set businesses up here. So we are facilitating lots of um, those types of opportunities because we have to have a real blend of... Um, independent business, we have to have national business, we have to have a real range of things but on your point around how it makes people feel um, even if somebody doesn't visit their city centre on a regular basis, if they know their city centre is really vibrant it makes them feel really proud of their place um, and you know what we are obviously trying to achieve is to make sure that people are coming here on a more regular basis so they're not choosing other destinations um, that are not too far away from here. Um, we, we're encouraging people to come in by doing all sorts of different things so physical transformation is really important and um, cleanliness and the, the fear of crime and, and security and things like that we've got some really transformational products and projects ongoing at the moment working with the police and the local authority in the bid and actually the police and crime commissioner's office um to make sure that the city center feels really safe and actually people have an enjoyable experience when they're here and if you couple that with lots and lots of different types of events and things that are happening it just drives footfall on a much more regular basis and people think ah that place is for me now and actually i really want to go there and engage in it and that then makes them feel much more emotionally connected to their city which previously i think we have had a real issue with Sunderland's a big city in terms of geography with five or 
six real centres on the outside of the city centre. And um, and we have missed that in the city centre. That footfall has stayed more local. And actually now what we're seeing is the transformation um, and, the, and the reputation is changing. So people are coming back in from other parts of their city because they think it's their city now rather than, you know, somewhere that they wouldn't want to go. Um, and you can, again, you can feel that. We, we research and we, we survey lots of different people about where they're coming from, why, you know, all of that type of thing on a regular basis. And you can definitely see the results of the investment um, are paying dividends for sure. And you mentioned big events in Sunderland, and I was struck by the the real big names that you've had. I mean, quite a lot of them at the Stadium of Light, like Beyonce and Pink. I think Bruce Springsteen is playing next summer, but also uh, at the Empire Theatre, you've got uh, Hamilton, the the you know the critically acclaimed West End musical. And I gather uh, Sunderland and Disney, which you know is is responsible for Hamilton, you have quite a good relationship you managed to build up quite a strong relationship over the years yeah we do i mean the the disney do actually really like coming here because of the quality of the theater and the size of the the stage and everything but actually because of the welcome they get here how brilliant the staff are within the theater how easy it is to do business here and actually you know you mentioned the the amazing um artists that we have at the stadium we've been doing concerts at the stadium of light now for over 20 years and actually we've had some incredible people like like the ones you've just mentioned but but even more than that and that partly is because it's easy to come to Sunderland because they get a brilliant reception. Um, the stadium make it really easy for them to come in and out. Um, all sorts of those types of things make a huge difference to promoters when they are looking at venues because there's lots of venues you can go to. But actually, when they're looking at venues in 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 the UK, um, they do come back to Sunderland because actually it is a it's a brilliant place to come and it's one of the easiest places to come and have a you know have a sellout gig. Um, and uh, you know that that's huge hugely important for us so it's not just about the reputation of the city it's about the welcome that people get when they're here sellout gigs are all very well but what do locals in the center of Sunderland going about their daily shopping think about the place I stood outside the Bridges shopping center in Sunderland city center in some blustery weather and tried to talk to a few of them I think Sunderland's come on the way up I think it's uh, yeah they've done the council's doing uh, really well uh, with the new buildings Hospital getting built. Yeah, it's, uh, it's on the way up from uh, being in the doldrums for a while. What was it like when it was in the doldrums? Like, would it is it a kind of place you wouldn't want to come to regularly? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, you wouldn't want. To, yeah, you wouldn't have wanted to come really. Um, but actually, now doing the, uh, the things what they should have done ages ago, as uh, the seafront, uh, beaches, jewel. as you, you get older you, you do look back with like it was the same you always call it glasses and you remember the happy days but when you do look back properly it was needed for modernisation and you know to bring industry and that in so I think all oh, this is really good yeah I think it's hopefully a big boost for Sunderland because in, living in the north east well, I was under Newcastle shadow for a start you know and I think we're just classed as the Mackens, you know why bother with us with a funny with a funny talk <laughs> who nobody can say they can understand. <laughs> so do you think Sunderland's sort of starting to compete a bit more with Newcastle now? Yes, I think so. I mean, to be honest, I mean, there's always the moans. I mean, like 
most of the money I think goes Newcastle way you know even when we got the metro we got a feeling it was more inclined like it's cheaper to go on the metro well I don't know about now to get through to Newcastle to go up the shops than it is to see it on the outline out estates to get on the bus to come into Sunderland the shops or you know they haven't made it easy for Sunderland you know to compete but um yeah I think we're doing okay I mean obviously with regards to retail and that that something needs to be done but I think that's all over now you know with shops shutting down and what have you I'm of the old breed I get wrong I like to go to shops I like to go in and out you know don't, don't want to just go on Amazon to get your get your stuff. You know, I mean, I do a bit online. I'm a QVC fanatic, in fact. But um, I like the But um, apart from that, no, you know, because my sons, you know, laugh. I was, oh, it's in the shops. They need me. They need me. <laughs> they need that. Well, I think they do, you know. And I don't know what they can do to turn that about. But it would be nice. And you know, you, you look at all photos of Sunderland, like any other place, and you see all the little individual shops you know I used to pop in and out you know I mean I remember coming down on a Saturday with my pocket money when I was a young and, and this was Courtney Road and all the little shops I used to spend the day in and out of the shops you know with me 10 pence pocket money or whatever I had you know um, and that's a shame but life does have to change and that's the way it goes you know and you have to accept it and hopefully it is for the better. I think it's, you know, and this culture, house opens and all that. And I mean, the eating places, people meeting up for coffees and eating. No, I think it's good, yeah. Um, I have to say, I don't come into the town centre all that much. Um, I can do my business, you know, elsewhere. Um, there's a lot of work going on, which is great. You know, we're getting a new eye infirmary, which is fantastic. And one side of the city looks great. The other side of the city just looks terrible. Blandford Street, Homeside, all the shops shut. Um, I've heard a rumour today that Marxists might be closing, um, and that would be devastating for a lot of people. Um, I do feel sometimes that the council waste a lot of money, um, but I don't read the local press, and I don't really listen to what local politicians say. Well, I guess there's probably a good reason, good reason for that. I mean, do you feel like Sunderland has changed for the better in recent in recent years? Um, in some ways, but not in others. I feel, you know, considering we are as big, if not bigger, than Newcastle, we've got left behind in some ways. Since she mentioned politicians, I thought it was about time I went to speak to one. Anthony Mullen, the leader of the Conservative group on the Labour-run local authority. In recent times, his party have had hopes of making gains to push the council into no overall control, and the Tories still have a sizeable number of councillors. I go to speak to him at Sunderland Council's gleaming new headquarters, City Hall, on the banks of the River Weir, a building it is renting for £2.4 million a year, and he has a different view to others I've heard about the transformation in the city. So I think largely this belongs to a post-Brexit context. 
which isn't to say that what's happening in Sunderland is a direct consequence of leaving the European Union, but that rather it's a political response to politicians interpreting what that vote meant. So Sunderland, I think, has largely been ignored by governments of, of all kinds. Newcastle has been seen as the kind of capital of the northeast capital of Tyne and Weir, and Sunderland is a satellite on, on the edge. But when Sunderland became the first major area to vote to leave the EU in 2016, I think politicians interpreted that as uh, the city crying out for something different. And uh, immediately governments began to deliver on that. But particularly in the context of levelling up, uh, Sunderland has been a, a big winner from that agenda. In 2019-20, it was the joint biggest recipient of levelling up grants. It's received new funding for its new train station, for its new arena, for the riverside development, for new housing projects, for new uh, industry in Washington. Most recently, the new towns deal in Washington, £20 million in a new towns board. So we have had a lot of government money pumped into Sunderland, I think, in response to, um, I suppose, the rebelliousness of the vote rather than the actual technical process of leaving the European Union. And when you walk around the city centre, I mean, it's clearly an area where there's a lot of change going on, lots of things happening. I mean, do you have any concerns about the way the change is happening or the types of change that we're seeing? So I think, like many places, it's a city of two halves. A lot of the development in the city centre that the council has used the levelling up funding for is commercial. It's to develop office space, including the new uh, city hall that the council is in, and housing. And the idea there is to bring footfall into the city centre by making people live in it. So it becomes a a more residential space than just a city centre distant from where people live. But what is being ignored, and I think this is a consequence across the country of people's changing retail habits and really we as members of the public have done this by buying online as much as we do is that we still see the high street in free fall so in recent times Sunderland has lost a series of restaurants it's lost its branch of Wilco it's lost its empire cinema and we see a number of uh, closed shop fronts not much retail activity in the city centre and certainly a perception that Newcastle has a much stronger retail offer or that the galleries at Washington, which is a separate shopping precinct, has a stronger retail offer or the Metro Centre and Gateshead does. So Sunderland really, I think, struggles to compete with other in-person retail experiences on the doorstep and, as across the country, uh, all high streets do, with the internet. So whilst there's progress on a lot of fronts, the new Culture House, um, Art Gallery and Museum, for example, the new arena that I mentioned, the new train station frontage, the actual practical things that people want to use the city centre for, i.e. shopping, that is still in decline. And obviously, as leader of the opposition, it's your job to scrutinise and hold to account the uh, Labour uh, leaders who are running the authority. I mean, what do you make of the job that they are doing in changing Sunderland? 
I wasn't aware they were doing a job in changing Sunderland. The leader of the council is largely a figurehead, and the change really has to be attributed on the one hand to government for the funding it's provided and to the private sector for the finance that it has put in and then on the other hand not to the leader of the council but to the chief executive of the council who is the person who has those conversations with government who brings in the private sector funders who has planned all of the change that we're seeing and really has spearheaded the transformation of the city so I'm not particularly concerned that people will see this as a great achievement for the Labour Council because the Labour leader in Sunderland is largely absent from these decisions and they have been led without him. The one thing I've heard in most conversations I've had in Sunderland is the very obvious change in approach from the council itself perhaps unusually in an era where town halls have seen their budget slashed and been forced to concentrate on dealing with soaring social care costs, Sunderland has taken a much more interventionist approach. I wanted to find out more and I spoke to Patrick Mellier who took over as chief executive in 2018. What has he been doing differently to his predecessors? I think obviously the approach we've taken this last five years or so is very very much based on where the city was. Um, the city was lacking investment, both in physical regeneration and was lacking in terms of ambition for the future. And I think at the time I likened it to Sunderland, if you think 26, 27 years ago, was it was a town, not a city. And we were still talk, acted, behaved, thought like a town rather than a city. So the approach was to try and, if we are a city, we need to talk, act, think, behave, be a city. So very much that's what we've been trying to do is kind of change culture, behaviours, values in a way that helps the city be ambitious and in doing so has a real impact for its residents and really be that city without a chip on the shoulder. So very much took an ambitious approach to being a city and very much then looking at the city and thinking we need investment in these private sector investment, but actually... The council has to show confidence in its city if it's going to bring private sector investment. So we've been interventionist in trying to make regeneration projects happen, such as developing City Hall, which enabled us to broker a deal with legal in general to put over £100 million worth of investment in some new office accommodation. That's then brought further investment in in terms of hotels. We're now building new homes in Riverside, Sunderland. So as a city centre... We were quite sparse. About 2,500 people lived in the city centre. We're on this mission to grow the number of people who live in the city centre and who work in the city centre. So we're building homes, we're building offices. That's bringing further investment. That is already sparking now investment in retail, leisure, hospitality in the city centre. New venues opening, which is bringing more jobs and creating more wealth. So it's been very much a direct intervention in the marketplace to create confidence in the city that then releases private sector investment and brings more investment. Now, I know one of the things I hear about Sunderland quite a lot is that you want to be the UK's smartest city. In fact, there's a whole website devoted to all the different projects uh, you're doing in that space. I mean, can you just explain what what that means in practical terms and what was the thinking behind sort of making that a central part of Sunderland's uh, transformation? 
we very much live in a, in a digital world. And one of the problems with the digital world is it creates a digital divide. The people who put fiber in the ground, people who put mobile masks up, etc., go where they're going to get money and get their returns. So what, what you'll find is as technology improves, the people who can afford it get it, and the people who can't afford it get left further behind. So we were very clear that as a city, if we're going to improve all of the city and make a difference to everyone in the city who lives there and works there, we needed to have a different strategy. We did a, a workshop four and a half years ago, which had all the key leaders from the city attend. So that was university, Nissan, the automotive sector, the Chamber of Commerce, the football club, community voluntary sector, the culture sector. And it was about what should our digital ambition be for the city? And actually, we spent most of those two days talking about challenges that we had. So the health of our population, people's education, attainment, quality of housing in the city, access to good jobs. And what that led us to was actually we need to use digital as a way that impacts on, on our lives in all shapes. So how does how do we use digital impact on health, education, on housing, on transport, how we have fun? So we created this digital ambition for the city, which was about making sure that no one and no place in the city was left behind in our digital ambition. And in doing so, hopefully that enables our residents to live a more richer life terms of health and well-being, a more prosperous life and therefore live healthier lives for longer. And then we started to develop that as a city council. We took the lead on that on behalf of the city and developed our ambition, therefore, to be the UK's smartest city. And what we mean by a smart city is actually we use a kind of what we call our layers cake approach. It's kind of got four tiers to it. The first tier is just a network of networks, fibre in the ground, 5G, uh, things called LoRaWAN and many wave technology. So we're building a network of networks across the city. So by 2025, 97% of all of our premises in the city, that's houses, buildings, businesses, will have full fiber gigabit connectivity. That's way ahead of the national ambition, which is 2030. We're also then building LoRaWAN technologies, building many wave technologies. That allows us to do different things. That network of networks then means you can deploy new applications. So we are deploying applications in the health sector. So as we build new hospitals, how do how do you enable more GPs practices to do online consultations, surgery, etc.? We're doing things in education world. So we've built private 5G network in the university. So the students in the university can do research and exploration. Um, and develop skills in the 5G world. We've done stuff in some of our primary schools in terms of connectivity. So where you had a primary school that most of the children hadn't ever experienced the internet because their parents couldn't afford a device or have access to data. Those five and six-year-olds now are getting live streaming lessons to other parts of the world like Bangladesh, etc. So it changes teaching and learning. We've done stuff in the transport world. So we know when you go across our main bridge, if you're a pedestrian, a cyclist, a car, a lorry, where you're going, we're deploying air quality sensors. As we roll out our new um, web application in the city, when you come into the city, we'll be able to tell you the air pollution. And if you've got asthma, you'll know where to avoid or where to go. 
Last year, we moved a 40-ton truck along Nissan supply chain using 5G technology without a driver. In March next year, you'll come to Sunderland. You'll get off at our public transport interchange. You'll get on a shuttle bus on public roads to take you to the hospital using a driverless vehicle using 5G technology. We're doing things in the manufacturing world uh, in terms of as we, so as we build batteries of the future, we're building cars in the city, how we use 5G to improve that. We can, we've reduced our carbon emissions in our buildings by deploying sensors. That's also delivering efficiency savings for the council. We've got over 4,000 homes now with adaptations using digital technology to enable people to be cared for in their own homes. So we've got the, the network of networks. We deploy lots of different applications. And then above those applications, we've got a data platform and we're sucking data from each of those applications. That gives us new intelligence and new insights into our city. And it's those insights and that information that allows us to deploy artificial intelligence or the applications of the future and change the city. Perhaps the development leaders in Sunderland are getting most excited about is one that's been described as the biggest news for the city since Nissan's investment in the 1980s a £450 million film studio on the banks of the River Weir, Fullwell Kane, a joint venture between global entertainment company Fullwell 73 and Kane International and Sunderland City Council, are spearheading a bid to gain approval for Crown Works Studios, one of the largest facilities of its kind in Europe, which locals hope will bring some 8,450 jobs. The plans have now been submitted for approval, but there's still a lot that needs to happen to make it a reality. Leo Perlman set up Fullwell 73 with friends including the TV host James Corden and has since gone on to make smash hit TV shows like Corden's Carpool Karaoke and The Friends Reunion. I spoke to him over the internet and he started off by telling me about his links with Sunderland. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I was, I, was a, a, I was born in Sunderland. Um, I was a Sunderland fan from before birth, um, decided on by my, by my dad, um, but grew up in Newcastle. So um, really, really did have, um, really am from the Northeast more broadly, uh, have maintained a connection with Sunderland over the years, um, continuing through the football club, obviously calling our company after the full world end at Roker Park in 73 when we won the cup final. Uh, but as I said, grew up in Newcastle and, and stayed in the city till I was 18 um, and still go, go back often. Um, I've had family there for well over 100 years. Uh, and now I'm, I'm uh, lucky enough to uh, to be involved with the football club as a non-exec director and um, far more importantly, to be trying to pull off this incredibly ambitious scheme to build this fantastic film and TV studio right there on the banks of the River Weir. Is it the case that you wanted to build this film studio and you thought, where's the best place for it, Sunderland? Or was it the case that you thought Sunderland needs something or maybe a film studio is the, is, is, is the thing to, to do? Like which, which came first? Well, well, let me give a tiny bit of context, if I may. Um, what we've seen in the UK over the last decade or, or so has been this incredible exponential boom in inward investment uh, off the back of the UK government's high-end tax credit, TV and film tax credit. Um, from almost a standing start, 
we've seen this growth up to last year, £6.7 billion of incoming from, uh, from, from streamers and broadcasters, mainly from the US, coming to bring their productions here to the UK. And what was really noticeable to me, and I think to others in the industry as well, was that so much of this was centred, rightly initially, around London and the southeast, rightly because that's where the crews are based, that's where the heritage was, that's where locations and facilities, so it made perfect sense. But over the last few years, what's become very clear is that we're oversaturated in London and the southeast. And that's why we've seen these pockets of production, these studios, small studios, pop up in Northern Ireland, in Wales, in the Midlands, in Scotland, with some real success. But what we've lacked, what we've really lacked in the UK, is a second major production hub, a region that builds from scratch genuine, scalable infrastructure to match what we have in London and the Southeast. And the reason why this is so important is demonstrated by the fact that right now, in Europe, the second largest production hub for high-end film and television is not somewhere else in the UK. It's actually Budapest. Now, with all due respect to Budapest and Hungary, they don't have a particular track record of creating high-end film and television. So what's the reason why, after London and the Southeast, there is such an exponential drop-off that Budapest is number two? The reason is because there hasn't been a level of investment into a single area, into a single region, to build that capability. So we saw the opportunity as being nationwide. Where can we build this? Where can we build this second production hub? Where can we build Atlanta that was built to add to the US's capability alongside California? What we saw was this black hole between Manchester, arguably, and Glasgow. There was 300 miles where the TV and film world had simply forgotten, didn't exist. There was no production coming out of it. Voices were being lost. There was no creativity, lots of creativity, but no amplification. And yet there were these fantastic locations that were being used for Hollywood blockbusters on a monthly basis. And there was a ready and willing workforce desperate to fill this skills gap that existed across the UK. So we went with the intention of building this studio somewhere within that space, somewhere between Yorkshire and Glasgow. We went and looked at 30 or 40 different locations that could potentially house this. And the truth is that Sunderland, and in particular Sunderland City Council, were the most forward-thinking, entrepreneurial, ambitious, commercially-minded, and they effectively said, if you bring us this opportunity, we will help you to deliver it. That's why Sunderland ended up being the location. There were some really big numbers attached to this project, aren't there? I mean, I see uh, figures like uh, 8,000 jobs that it could potentially create and best, you know, more than £300 million pounds, uh, a year for the local economy. Um, how can you be so sure that it's going to succeed uh, to, to that extent? Well, the numbers you mentioned are actually slightly lower than they are. It's 8,500 new jobs. It's 350 million of annual GVA. But what's important to note is that when you look at it on a national basis, building a studio of this scale in Sunderland adds 2.5 billion to the national economy and adds 21,500 jobs to the country. So actually, the numbers are even greater. Um, how can I be so sure? Well, I've worked in this industry for 20 years. I produce high-end film and television. We have offices in LA. 
We speak on a weekly basis to the heads of production and to the heads of studios and streamers. We are very much a part of this world. Um, where we've had to bring in expertise is how to build a studio. Where we don't need expertise is how to make great productions and how to bring in those productions to a studio. We've also had uh, professional um, involvement from the likes of Stephen Bristow at Safries, who is the gentleman who wrote the UK tax credit. Um, so at the very highest level, we've had the information, the research and the data to back up every piece of this plan. Um, and yeah, I think we're in, we're in really, really fantastic shape to deliver on it from a private perspective and from the involvement of Sunderland City Council. The piece that is still missing and that it's important to reiterate that without, we can't deliver this, is the government's involvement in this. From day one, I've said that this is an opportunity for public and private partnership to deliver regeneration to a region and enormous economic upside to the country as a whole. And if we fail and we miss this opportunity, it's going to be truly damaging. Just last week, we had Amazon come out and say in unequivocal terms that it was very easy for them to move productions from one country to another when the economic climate to move made sense. Amazon bring in a couple of billion of that 6.7 a year to the UK. And they are very clearly ringing the bell and telling us and telling this government that they've taken the eye off the ball and that there is a reason why production is going to Budapest or to France or to Morocco, uh, to Melbourne, to Vancouver and everywhere else on the planet. It's because we're not offering the same incentives and the same upside that we had previously. So that's the opportunity. That's the risk. Um, we're hoping that um, we're hoping to find that partnership very soon. So what specifically would you like the government to do? What do you need from them? There is an ask that's been into them for the last year or two that we've had fantastic support um, at every level from DCMS, from DLUC, Business and Trade, OFI, from Number 10 and Treasury, all telling us that this makes perfect sense for the industry, for the country. Um, we're putting up 450 million of private money. We're looking for them to, uh, at a fraction of that level, to come on board and help support the project. Um, and uh, yeah, we need that cast iron guarantee at this point. We were obviously hopeful that the autumn statement would give us a little bit more clarity on that. It hasn't, very clearly. Um, in fact, there's barely a mention of the creative industries in truth and film and television. Um, I think at this stage, asking for further evidence that, uh, that an improved tax credit or rebate would have a positive effect um, is somewhat troubling. Um, the evidence is there and it has been for quite some time. Um, but I'm still hopeful that this government takes the opportunity that's being offered to them. Um, this is an opportunity of scale that hasn't been seen for our region since Nissan in the 80s. It's simply that big. It's that much of a game changer. And if one can point to within our industry, an equivalent scale opportunity anywhere in the country where a private group is talking about close to half a billion of investment, um, then I'm very happy to discuss further which opportunity is more valuable. But at the moment, as far as I'm concerned, I don't see anything that comes close to it. The final thing I wanted to ask you about, Leo, was in terms of uh, you know who will work at this 
film studio. Obviously, it is a project where to work there, a lot of the jobs will be quite high skilled jobs, quite specialist jobs in production and so forth. Is the idea that that people from across the country would come to work at Full World Studios or would it be the case that you would try and upskill the existing population to do those jobs or is it a mixture mixture of the two well it's great that you bring this up rob genuinely because it's a real um it's a real misnomer actually within the industry that uh, the majority of the jobs are specific to the film and tv world 85 percent of those eight and a half thousand jobs 85 percent are blue collar jobs they are to do with reskilling uh existing jobs so whether it's um whether it's you know plasterers whether it's carpenters, whether it's electricians, whether it's drivers, um, all of those roles are the are really the infrastructure and what what drives the industry. And those are the jobs that we need to create. So a lot of them are people who already have the skills and simply don't realise that actually they have the skills to work in a film studio. And that's really exciting. They also, as pretty much at a baseline, pay twenty to thirty percent higher than those same jobs, same skills would pay in their traditional roles. So we're really actually saying that the majority of these jobs that we're going to create, skills already exist, or skills are very achievable. We just have to demonstrate and put together a package that enables people to reach that potential. There are, of course, some very specialised and skilled jobs. Of course there are. And luckily, across the universities and colleges in the region, we have some fantastic production courses that already supply a lot of those skills. Sunderland University last year in The Guardian was listed as the number one, the top production course in the country. And yet, if you go and ask those third-year students where they intend to work as soon as they qualify, as soon as they graduate, they all say, well, we're moving to London or Manchester, or we're going to find jobs in another industry if we want to stay in our region. And that's really depressing. So when we build this, when we build Crownwork Studios, it's going to give all of those young people, all of those young people that currently don't have a chance to stay in their industry, to stay in the region that they have grown up in, that they love, to use the skills that they've learned. And that's that's something which I feel is a fantastic upside of doing. So after I spoke to Leo Perlman, there was some very good news for Sunderland, thanks to the car giant Nissan that we mentioned right back at the start of the podcast. There was jubilation this week as the company announced it will produce two new electric vehicle models, the Qashqai and the Duke, at its Sunderland plant, supporting thousands of jobs. According to the Prime Minister Bishi Sunak, this venture will no doubt secure Sunderland's future as the UK's Silicon Valley for electric vehicle innovation and manufacturing. And while he was there promoting the announcement, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt was asked about what the government was doing to get the Sunderland Film Studio proposal over the line. Here's what he said. All I will say is, this year's California blockbuster Barbie was shot in Hertfordshire. Next time, let's have a Sunderland Barbie. And so it sounds like there's plenty of warm words coming from our top politicians about this plan, but we've still not had the actual commitment to the project that would get it over the line. I spoke to Leo Perlman again afterwards, and while he welcomed the positive attitude from the Chancellor, what he wanted to see was an actual commitment to the project. So, would there be a change of attitude to Sunderland under a Labour government? Here is Sharon Hodgson, one of the city's Labour MPs. 
a Labour government will really make all the difference to places like the like Sunderland, and I do really believe that. Labour want thriving business and meaningful devolution that breaks the cycle of Westminster discontent, where it can feel impossible to get the current government to even notice us. Even the government's big Network North plans designed to transform transport in the north, the furthest north any significant funding gets is Manchester and Leeds. And the Conservatives rejoiced over their success in the Red Wall, as we know, in 2019, but have failed to deliver on any promise of government attention to the North East. It is councils like Sunderland that have had to, despite budget cuts and funding freezes, power forward to deliver for their cities. Sunderland City Council, it has to be said, have always had the confidence and a vision for what Sunderland can be and they've never been too shy to take opportunities like the Smart City Initiative and just lead the way. Changes such as the Fullwell 73 film studio development and the Smart City Initiative and Riverside Sunderland Plan are all incredible examples of transformative regeneration projects that will give Sunderland the boost it needs to cement Sunderland is a major hub of technology, innovation and culture, not only in the UK, but across Europe. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.